On this episode of Serverless Chats, I speak with Chris Munns about reinventing serverless. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 26. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Chris Munns. Hey, Chris, thanks for being here. Hey, Jeremy, thanks for having me. So you are the Senior Manager of Developer Advocacy for Serverless at AWS Cloud. Um, so why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your background and, uh, and what you do in that, that role? For sure, definitely. Uh, you know, going back to the earlier parts of my career, I started as what I guess I would have considered a sysadmin. Maybe these days you would call it a DevOps engineer or an SRE or something like that. But I took care of servers and infrastructure kind of a jack-of-all-trades across the stack, kind of below the application. And then uh, just a little over eight years ago, actually just about eight years ago, I first joined AWS as Solutions Architect. Did that for a couple of years, actually went back out to a startup and then came back again. And then for the last three years, I have been a developer advocate for serverless at AWS. Uh, and then just in the last year or so, I've actually built out a team of people that are kind of all over the globe. And what we do as a team is we create a lot of content, we deliver a lot of content, we do a lot of interacting with our customers, trying to share the, the good word about serverless and get people over the challenges and things that they are uh, understanding the various aspects of our, our platform, I would say. Um, so you'll see a lot of us stuff, a lot of our stuff show up in webinars and Twitch and blog posts and in conferences and in social media and all that kind of stuff. And I would say the next biggest part of what we do is act as a voice of the customer back to the product teams. So we are embedded in the product organization. We have influence over you know, what product is built and to a degree how it's built. And we want to make sure that our customers' uh, you know, concerns, the things they're trying to solve, the challenges that they have are being properly represented back to the product organization. Great. All right, and so we are live actually in Las Vegas. We're at the big show, as yeah. as uh, you know, as AWS uh, uh, fans, I guess, would call it. Um, so we're at reInvent 2019. Uh, there have been a ton of announcements uh, so far this week, and I think we're pretty much done, right? We've 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 hit the max on uh, on cognitive <laughs> load for the number of serverless yeah. announcements um, that have come out. But uh, there are a whole bunch of them that I want to talk about, and we can get into some of these in detail. But um, but there were some really great ones that I think solve uh, a lot of customer pain points. So, what 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 do you think are sort of the biggest announcements um, you know that 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 came out so far? And not maybe maybe not just that reinvent, but also in the last couple of weeks because the last few weeks there's been a ton of announcements as well. So, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's been a really hectic period for us in the serverless organization at AWS. Uh, you know, in the last two weeks, a whole bunch of things. But really, I like to boil it down to kind of four key big things that we've launched in the last couple of months or announced in the last, say, three months that I think take on some of the biggest challenges that our customers have. So the first was back in September, we announced that we were going to be changing the way that VPC networking worked for your Lambda functions. And so we announced this new concept of what we call VPC to VPC NAT. It's built on an AWS technology called Hyperplane. It's really a part of, kind of advanced part of our networking stack. And so uh, as of last week, so the week here before reInvent, the week of Thanksgiving here in the United States, we actually finished the rollout to all the public regions that we have across the globe. And so it's taken some time to get this rolled out. It's actually a really huge infrastructure shift. But basically what this did was it drastically lowered the overhead of having your functions attached to a VPC for cold start. 
And we had examples where it was shaving eight, nine, 10 seconds mm -hmm. off of that initial cold start pain. It also reduces the total number of them. And so really huge ones. So that's the biggest one out in all public regions today globally. And so uh, customers are just seeing the benefits of that. The next is on Tuesday of this week, we announced a capability in Lambda called provision concurrency. Um, you and I have some fun history in this. I think it was almost two years ago at a startup event in Boston, maybe right. it was, yes. Yes. where uh, I, I talked a little bit about you know some of the pre-warming hacks, and then you and I just kind of like went through back and forth on it for a while. You yeah. launched your Lambda your Warmer, Lambda yeah. Warmer project, yes. which has become like the de facto standard. And so we're kind of like full <laughs> circle here. You and I, this like. I don't know, two years later almost. Right. And what it's, um, actually, it's actually funny because I, I wrote a blog post that I, you know, sort of like an open letter to the Lambda team that was asking for provision concurrency. And mm -hmm. you and I had this conversation way back when. And you said, well, we really don't want to do that because, mm -hmm. you know, we want to improve the, the um, uh, we want to improve the cold starts and get those down. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually really glad that the team at AWS did that because I think if you would have gone with provision concurrency before, mm -hmm. then the need to make those improvements wouldn't have been there. Um, yeah. And so it sort of pushed you and your team to, to you know, and the, the engineers there to get those um, those cold starts down um, and work on that. But now provision concurrency adds a whole new level, which again, I think is great. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to talk about that now? Or you want to, we, we can... Yeah, yeah well, look, we'll riff on that. Okay. Right? So All yeah, right. we saw, or, you know, I saw some commentary that people thought that this meant that we were giving up on continuing to improve cold starts. Okay. And it's like, we want to be real clear that that's not the case like this is a you know a knob or a lever that you can turn that yes it changes the way that functions are essentially uh, it, like it's difficult to use the term pre-warm but effectively they are you know pre-baked up through the init phase of a function life cycle mm -hmm. but what we've done throughout the year and I've I've made a couple of tweets about this in like the first half of the year of places where we've you know shaved you know, tens of milliseconds off of some part of the overhead of the platform, or we've lowered jitter on, you know, various aspects yeah. of it. And there's a lot of that stuff that continues to happen. And actually, I talked about this at uh, ServerlessConf New York City back in October. Mm -hmm. And I basically said one of the key benefits of serverless is that it just kind of keeps getting better for you. And there's basically three ways that it happens. One is all the stuff we do behind the scenes that you just never see. Uh, the second is the stuff that we launch that we tell you about, but it's just kind of automatic. There's mm -hmm. no like opt-in, there's no option you need to take to enable that. Right, yeah. And that's basically what the VPC improvement looked like. And then the third is where we give you a knob where we say, hey, for certain things, you're gonna wanna make this conscientious decision or not mm -hmm. to turn this on. And so provision concurrency is an example of that third one. Um, you know, we see it primarily being for you know interactive or synchronous-based workloads, so primarily APIs, maybe yeah. chatbots, things like that. And uh, you know, again, what it does is it provides, I think, a more trusted solution than some of the things that you and I had even talked about that right. we were like, you kind of do this, it's a little yeah. hacky, you run this kind of forked logic in your handler, exactly. you do this other thing. Yeah. And so this is gonna give folks a just a much more consistent uh, you know, method for doing this. Mm -hmm. And then the outcome of that method is greater consistency, lower latency and potentially even lower costs. So that's yeah. one of the interesting aspects about this when we were looking at pricing is we didn't want to make this be a you know a penalty for performance. Right. We consider it a premium feature for sure, but that's mostly because we don't think that everyone needs it. Yeah. There's only certain folks that are really, really gonna have this extremely low latency requirement. By and large, and this is another thing we've talked about in the past, you know, cold starts impact very, very, very few invocations. Mm -hmm. It's probably the biggest 
misunderstanding about the cold start and how it impacts the workload is that really below like the 98th percentile or something of traffic, you just don't see it. You're not going to see it. But yeah. the last two percentile is something that people typically care, so that some people really care about a lot, yeah. I should say. Yeah. Uh, and so provision concurrency helps solve that for them. Yeah. And I and I actually, I, I kind of liken this, and, and maybe this is not the, the best way to think about it, but I think a good mental model is this is sort of like buying reserved instances of Lambda functions, in a sense, where you're, um, you know, yeah, you're, you're, yeah. you're getting a cheaper, <laughs> you, you pay you pay a little bit upfront, but you get sort of a cheaper execution or, you know, per execution is a little bit cheaper. Um and so I, I know I kind of look at it that way, but I totally agree with you on the cold start thing where it's like for almost 99% of what you're doing, cold starts will never come into play and it's not mm -hmm. that big of a deal. But I can see there being workloads that are fairly consistent, um, that are fairly heavy that you, you know, you might want to, and, and I think the pattern here might be to slightly under provision your provision concurrency so that you're almost always using 100% of that provision um, capacity. Uh, but then the other thing that, um, that I thought was sort of interesting is some people have pointed out they're like, well, why not just do the Lambda warmer or that sort of that, you know, the cold, the, um, the cloud watch ping technique. Yeah. Um, and what's different is every time, like my project, has to call your function you're using one of those you're using a concurrent connection in order to do it and and the system would allow you to do multiple concurrent connections mm -hmm. and the way that it did that was by actually running a a, a wait timer to to keep the other ones open mm -hmm. so that there was enough to you could actually build up that concurrency problem with that is that ties up that concurrency yeah, it's blocking uh, it's yeah. doing blocking right where where this uh provision concurrency doesn't do blocking and so you always have those available yeah yeah, you know, again, I think that was one of the things where we never formalized the uh, warmer, the warming hack model as we consider it in, in any real way. And, and there was also kind of this unwritten, what I call the, the 515 rule, mm -hmm. where we said, oh, we keep functions or execution environments warm five minutes outside of VPC, yeah. 15 minutes inside of VPC. But that was before the VPC networking improvement. Mm -hmm. And that was before uh, you know, a bunch of other things that we might have coming out that, that might even make those times dynamic. Yeah. So the 515 rule might go completely away. Mm -hmm. And then people might have to get even more creative and do all this other hacking and do all this other stuff. <laughs> and, and yes, the, the warming model that, that you and I have talked about, it was blocking. It effectively could be detrimental to a customer request Absolutely. in of itself. Yes. And so you know, again, PC, uh, provision concurrency, we call it PC for short now, you know, it, it, it gives you an official solution to this problem. Not everyone by far is going to need to solve this mm -hmm. problem this way. But for folks who do, this is the way to do it for now. Yeah. That said, we just announced this thing two days ago. <laughs> We're digesting everyone's feedback. We, you know, right. Obviously, we've been talking to customers for quite some time in you know, private conversations about mm -hmm. it. But what, what my team is doing at this point is aggregating feedback. We're going to boil it down. We're going to keep looking at it, and you know, if we find out that this isn't the right model, mm -hmm. then we're going to work to find the right model for our customers. Yeah, and I actually, one of the things I really like about this provision concurrency too is that, yes, there are probably those use cases where you want to keep 500 Lambda functions warm, yeah. and that may be you know, for enterprise or whatever, but even for smaller things, I think about a bunch of administrative uh, or administrative APIs that I have where they're synchronous APIs, mm -hmm. and you maybe have you know, 10, 20, 30 people using it 
at any given time, maybe even less than that. Um, if you wanted to keep that warm and you wanted to keep some important endpoints warm so that so that admin users didn't run into a cold start, which again mm. would probably be fairly minimal anyways at this point. Um, but that's something where, you know, provision five or something like that, it mm -hmm. barely cost you anything. Mm -hmm. um, it's still going to be very, uh, very inexpensive, but it would, it would take away that pain that the occasional uh, user would yeah. see. And, and one other big thing about provision concurrency is that it's integrated with auto scaling. Mm -hmm. So, you know, AWS auto scaling pervasive across so many different parts of the platform. People are very familiar with its, its mechanisms and how it works. And so there's some little tweaks here that happen with provision concurrency. But you can, you know, you can follow your traffic, you can schedule, you know, the ability to, to rise and fall at certain mm -hmm. times of the day. So I think we're going to see people who say, oh, yeah, I, I have a, you know, highly latency sensitive application. I'm going to over provision because I need my TP99, TP100 to be really, really low and consistent with yeah. the TP50 that I have. Sure. Um, and, and for those who are not familiar with that term, we're talking about, you know, essentially performance across the, you know, the, the, graph of performance over you know, how customers are uh, experiencing your application. But um, yeah, yeah, I think we're going to see people doing a, a lot of different things with it. I think we're going to see people use it be like, oh, you know what, I probably don't need this. Yeah. Um, uh, but now it's, it's a tool that's out there. Mm -hmm. it, it is going to solve some big customer challenges. Uh, it's going to unblock a lot of people who you know, want to build serverless applications. Yeah, and I want to move on to other things, but I have one more point yeah. that I want to make on provision concurrency because <laughs> I was just talking about this actually with uh, um, with Slobodan and uh, Alexander, uh, who are two other serverless heroes. Um, mm -hmm. And we were saying, you know, look, the pattern here or the, the best practice, leading practice is single-purpose Lambda function. Um, and so we're building a lot of single-purpose Lambda functions that are endpoints on APIs. So mm -hmm. now you say, okay, I want to build an API that has 50 different endpoints. Maybe I want to keep those warm for some reason. Um, now the pricing model here is I'm paying for warming all these different mm -hmm. Lambda functions. And one of the things I don't want to see happen is to slide back into the monolithic Lambda function because now I can keep that warm. So yeah. just a thought. So about <laughs> that, um, so in my talk, the, one of my talks that I have this week, uh, the code for it is SVS343, mm -hmm. uh, Building Microservices with AWS Lambda. I actually uh, have some, I, I talk about this. So okay. I talk about the, you know, per function, per like API action model. And then I talk about the Lambda Lith. So the, yep. the Lambda-based monolith that's out there. And uh, internally with our like internal uh, field experts and our subject matter experts internally, we've had a bunch of heated discussions about this. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that we see is that there are you know a number of developers that have certain frameworks that they love. And that framework says, I want to route logic inside of my function. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know a number of API frameworks that are out there that will do this, and uh, it ends up working for people. They end up being happy with it. They yeah. end up being successful with it. Now, I would say that I think that uh, you, Alexander Slobodan, myself, mm -hmm. we're purists in right. wanting to see people use the platform <laughs> the way that you know the maker intended well, it you to want a the degree. Mechanisms. You want all that resiliency yeah. and all of that stuff. I mean, I always tell people, don't put try catches in your lambda functions. Let the function fail and let the cloud handle that. Yeah, yeah, Sorry, yeah. yeah, go ahead. And we we can talk about the the new stuff that helps make that even better. But yep. you know, I think at the end of the day. Um, uh, you, you know, the, the Lambda Lith also enables potentially some, some better like code portability. Some people really care about that. There are definitely points where it f starts to become problematic, where you reach the bounds of what you can do in that Lambda Lith. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as you reach that tipping point, you're kind of in like a, oh no, how do I break apart this thing? Yeah. And then you run into all the challenges that you would have with any sort of monolithic application. Um, 
you know, I think, yes, we will see people who say, oh, well, I got this provision concurrency thing. I'm going to pull all my code into one function so I don't have to provision that much or something. Yeah. But to a maybe to a degree, they'll still end up having to uh, provision some amount towards the cumulative amount of requests that they would have gotten across all those individual functions. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it may be being too smart despite yourself to mm -hmm. a certain degree. We'll have to see. We'll have to see what patterns end up really coming out from this. Yeah, so. and I mean, that might be something interesting that could happen is where it's not about provisioning a specific Lambda function. It's just maybe provisioning a certain amount of concurrency across a group of Lambda functions or something like that. And I'm sure there's things. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the big things that, that provisioning concurrency does, um, and we could definitely change topics, <laughs> is it gets should. you all the way up through in it. Yeah. So all the way in the Lambda lifecycle up through where we execute your prehandler code. Mm -hmm. And what we've actually seen is that that pre-handler code is the more expensive part of the equation most true. times than the platform overhead. Mm -hmm. um, you've got people, you know, importing packages. They're, uh, you know, talking out to other API services. Maybe they're getting stuff from Secrets Manager, from Parameter Store. Yeah. It's encrypted with KMS. You got decrypted. All these things. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, provisioning currency getting you through in it, but stopping at your handler essentially. Yeah. Um, that's a big part of it. So yeah, you know, we're gonna have to see what what patterns emerge. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna have to see what feedback we get on how to tweak it. You know, I don't think this is a, a one and done feature announcement. Sure, I think sure. you'll see some stuff in the the future that uh, you know tweaks it one way or the other. Great. All right. So that was two. That was two. <laughs> so oh boy. Yeah. Next one. Um, uh, man, I'm trying to. So I, so I got two more here, and I'm trying to think of what order I want to talk about them because they're both so important. Uh, I'll do it in chronological order from when they launched. Perfect. So on Tuesday, we also uh, basically kind of co-announced with the RDS relational database service uh, something called RDS Proxy. Mm -hmm. um, for again, those folks who have been building service applications for for some time now, working with relational databases has been a challenge. You have to deal with the fact that your functions may need to establish new connections. Um, and then when the function is idle, it doesn't necessarily tear that down. And so mm -hmm. that establishing of new connection overhead could be expensive of both the database and your function. Uh, there's the scale challenge of you potentially consuming lots of connections on your database. Zombie connections. Yep. Yeah. So that would lead to people you know, outsizing their database to deal just with connections, which right. is an unfortunate thing to do. Mm -hmm. Long story short, this is going to help remove that problem. So, uh, you know, with RDS proxy, we basically are creating a database proxy. And so uh, there are lots of other solutions for this in the industry. There's PG Balancer for Postgres. Mm -hmm. There's MySQL proxy uh, that exists. It's a, you know, open source package. There's a couple others that exist that are out there. Uh, but this one is, you know, built by us for the cloud, scales for the cloud. And it's going to do, you know, connection management, shared connections, Helps do things like failover for multi-AZ, mm -hmm. uh, you know, databases for you. Um, it's only in preview right now, so it supports just MySQL. Yeah. Uh, we're obviously hearing a lot of feedback about Postgres, so I would just say, like, you know, I've heard that sit, too. <laughs> sit tight, folks. Sit tight. You know, we'll see what happens by the time we get to GA or soon after, maybe. Yeah. Um, but this is a really big one, and now between the performance improvements on VPC, mm -hmm. they're going to allow people to put more functions into VPC, yeah. where RDS is typically running. And then this, you now basically get to the point where you can do these connect more relational database, have it be you know really efficient and effective, not eat up a lot of resources, and have it be really fast. Yeah. So uh, this is a huge one, and and I've had some people say, "Wow, this is the biggest one of the week for me." <laughs> yeah, um, I, I know, and, yeah. and, and so this is the other thing that's kind of funny. And so um, on top of the lambda 
uh, or the provision concurrency, which you know I had that package, the Lambda warmer package. Um, I also have a package called serverless-mysql, mm -hmm. which essentially does connection management for you. So what it does mm -hmm. is use the process list, cleans up, um, you know, cleans up um, zombie uh, zombie connections. It'll say if you set like seventy percent um, capacity, then it will automatically kill connections up to a certain point. Um, so AWS this week has killed two of my open source projects, <laughs> but I actually love it because I don't want to have uh -huh. to do that, right? Yep. And so it's I, I love the fact that um, you know that you build workarounds. I think that's where we are with serverless right now, anyways. Is that there are certain things that you um, you think you can do or would be easy to do with other things. I mean, connection pooling should be the simplest of things. But when you have ephemeral compute and each one has to compete for those connections, like you said, mm -hmm. um, you need some way to manage it. So managing it with an open source uh, an open source package worked really well. I got a lot of people using that package and, and things like that. And I think people will still use it because it does some good transaction mm -hmm. handling mm -hmm. and or it's got a better workflow for transactions and stuff. So as I you know promote my own stuff here, <laughs> um, but uh, but seriously, no, I think it's great because because this is this was a huge missing. Piece where people are just not willing to let go of relational databases, and for very good reasons. Yes. Right? It's 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 where their data is today. It's what they understand. They've they've maybe been trained in it, or just yeah. just have so many years of of experience with it. Um, you know, I, I don't think we were ever comfortable with the idea of telling people like, "Oh, too bad, time yeah. to move to non-relational." Yeah. Um, so yeah, big one. It's, again, it's unblock a lot of workloads, especially in the enterprise, um, but even for developers that are, are just in general, more comfortable relational databases, it's mm -hmm. going to open up Lambda for them. All right, so just a couple of questions on this to clarify. So the RDS proxy, you still have to run inside a VPC. Correct. Right? And then uh, in terms of how that connects, so there'll be, there's some secrets manager stuff that you need to do, Yep. right, at that at the proxy layer itself? Yeah, yeah, so the, the proxy manager, uh, sorry, the, the RDS proxy ends up using secrets manager mm -hmm. to handle the secrets management between your database and the proxy itself. What's great then is this can tie in up through your Lambda function mm -hmm. so that you're not hard coding usernames and passwords in places. Um, and you can use either the IAM authentication methods that they have with RDS today, yep. or you can still use uh, username and password, however managed by Secrets Manager. Mm -hmm. And so you just have to give your function access to that data inside of Secrets Manager, and it can pull in on the fly and do all that kind of cool and stuff. And right now in the preview, it only supports RDS Aurora MySQL, it doesn't support serverless Aurora yet, right? So it supports RDS MySQL, Aurora MySQL, but yeah. not yet serverless okay. MySQL, gotcha. correct. All right, next one. Yeah, and then and then last but definitely, definitely not least is we also just announced uh, yesterday uh, basically a new model for Amazon API Gateway. So for Amazon API Gateway, the, the first kind of effectively API model that we launched with was what we called REST APIs. Mm -hmm. uh, it was very much meant to be almost kind of by the book to uh, the purest vision right. of REST APIs. Mm -hmm. uh, last year, we announced uh, WebSocket support, uh, which was one of the biggest things that we were asked for from our customers. But I think if we look at API Gateway, it's you know, it's kind of a, I was supposed to say like a misunderstood product. Yeah. Um, it's an incredibly sophisticated powerful product that just can give you so many knobs and levers and so many things. Mm -hmm. And to a degree, customers are just like, we just want something really simple, really easy, yeah. like more basic. Yeah. Um, and so 
you know, given that, given feedback on performance and, and cost and what people kind of perceived, you know, what they were spending their money on, mm-hmm. um, which is all valid feedback. We, we, we take it, we track it, we quantify it, all of that. Like, that's what we do at AWS. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yesterday we announced uh, something that we're calling HTTP-based APIs. And uh, if, if I'm trying to make sure I don't get the numbers mixed up here, it's 70% uh, less cost than the REST API model. Yeah, it's $1 per million invocations as opposed to $3.50 per million. Yep. Yes. Yep. And then at the, uh, I believe it's a, a 60% reduction in the overhead that API Gateway used to add. And API Gateway was pretty quick. Yes. Like, it didn't add a whole lot, but we still had people say, no, no, we want even faster. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this is going to make it so that you can build, you know, really simple basic APIs up through still fairly complex APIs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a bunch of um, new uh, authorization uh, capabilities. Uh, we've got um, uh, just just a bunch of other things that you could do with it that make it a little more flexible in some ways. There are some things that were in the REST APIs that are not in the HTTP API yet. Um, it's also a service that's just in preview right now. Yeah. Um, but again, I think for serverless customers in particular, with the way that how a lot of our serverless developer customers are building APIs, this is just going to be a, just a solid win for them. Yeah. Um, it does. So it is a a effectively new product inside of the product name. Mm-hmm. So you do have to relaunch your applications to support it. Yeah. It's not just like a toggle, uh, but you can do uh, a, a number of things to you know export an API and then import it in. Um, or you can just you know redeploy your application up with the new version of it. All right, yeah, and so I think I think that this is a very cool new product and a, a new way that we're going to do it. It's definitely going to reduce costs. And this the model for this is that the the lambda proxy model, right, where it's sort of that full pass through into the into the lambda function. Correct. Yeah, today it's it's definitely meant to be a much simpler, easier experience. Um, and and so again, no VTL templates and that kind of stuff. <laughs> no, no, you shouldn't need to do any of that right now. Definitely okay. not. Um, but we've got a bunch of new like kind of easier capabilities around cores. Um, you know, talking about the um, authorization yes. or authorizer capabilities. So now we have uh, JWT authorizers that can support OpenID, yeah. which was a big one that people have been requesting. Yeah, they announced so, Apple Apple login for, for Cognito. Yeah, Amazon right? yeah. Cognito now supports Apple yeah. login. Um, so that's going to help folks that are in the you know the Apple iOS OS X world of things. Yeah. Uh, which is not a small community of developers. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, just you know, a bunch of new stuff that you'll be able to do with this. Uh, you know, again, I think the the lower cost, the better performance, and you know, kind of some of the easier uh, you know configuration capabilities is big. Great. All right. So that was four. So that those are the four big ones. Um, I know we've been talking for a while, but there are a few other ones that I do want to get to. Um, so Event Bridge Schema Registry. Yes. Uh, so. I'm a huge fan of EventBridge, and now like using it in every project I'm building. Awesome. Uh, I realized again. I talked to some of the some of the team um, about uh, EventBridge, and I think there's some amazing thing that's coming. You know, amazing things coming down uh, the road for that. So, uh, so tell us about uh, the schema registry. Yeah. So, so, so backing up for those who don't really know what EventBridge is, at the end of the day, um, EventBridge uh, has a concept called uh, buses. This is, this is built upon what we were doing previously with CloudWatch events. Mm-hmm. So it takes the same kind of underlying technology for that. And essentially what you do with EventBridge is you have the ability to connect some sort of source uh, you know, service, an event source, and this could be a number of AWS services, it could be third-party SaaS products uh, or something custom that you want. And then what EventBridge does via its bus model is then allow you to pass that event through 
uh, set really fine-grained rules against the actual individual attributes of the event. So it's a, it's a JSON structure we support today. And then that can then be targeted out to, uh, I think it's like 17 different services. Yes, yeah. So it's Lambda, it's SQS, it's SNS, it's... Step functions, step functions. you can't do with SNS. Uh -huh. right? so. um, it's Kinesis, it's I think Fargate. There's a bunch of different places that you can pass the events. So uh, I kind of already talked about this. So you, you know, an event will have a structure. You can consider that a schema. And what we're now giving you the ability to do is to basically, for your applications, for those third-party applications, for AWS service applications, track the schema of those, register it, so be able to determine like a type on it. But then the coolest, coolest thing, I think, is that we give you the ability to generate what we're calling code bindings, mm -hmm. which is basically code that will allow you to pull out the individual attributes of that event. Um, and I, I've heard this from... Um, you know, number of folks over the years, uh, uh, Mike and John from Symphonia. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. They always used to talk about, like, just give us some code to pull apart the events. <laughs> um, well, we, you know, to a degree we did here. Yes. Uh, so code bindings is a super big part of it. You know, I think this is still some, some early capabilities. It is still in preview. But, uh, you know, being able to track the types of events, um, which when you have that schema registry there, and, and stepping back to bigger picture with EventBridge, one of the ideas that we see is, when you have all these events flowing through your, your infrastructure, mm -hmm. people are gonna say, well, how do I discover what an event is? Service registry helps with that. Yes. You could see an event, you could see, you could see the schema of it, you could see the attributes inside of it. You can decide how you want to filter or have a rule set configured for that. And so as your especially for larger organizations, as the number of services that you have expands, that you want to do new things, consuming different services, the registry is gonna make it really easy for you to discover what types of events are flowing mm -hmm. through your system. Yeah, and I think that, that that for me, I use EventBridge so much and I have so many events flying through it right now um, with, with different microservices, you know, that it's using that as that main bus. Um, there's just the number of events is staggering, the different types of events. Yeah. And so obviously the having those regist the registry for the AWS events, so that's easy, downloading those code bindings, autocomplete in your VS code or whatever you're yeah. using, yeah. Um, that's a super handy feature. But when you start generating your own events across teams, um, mm -hmm. being able to discover interesting events, categorize them, and, and put them into uh, into that registry, yep. uh, I think will be really, really helpful. And I had posted something on Twitter about this where I said the registry would be great. Getting people to put stuff in the registry uh -huh. is a challenge in and of itself. Uh -huh. um, so if the so with the the uh, schema. Uh, discovery piece of it, I think that is going to be a huge step where people will really find it useful. So I'm, yeah. I'm very much so excited about that. Um, all right. So then another thing that came out and we can, this is, I think, sort of a, a quick thing, but um, express workflows. Yeah. Yeah. So express workflows. So uh, this is for step functions. Uh, so again, for folks who are not familiar with step functions, step functions is a, a managed orchestration uh, service, if you will, that, um, uh, allows you to take all of the kind of workflow logic that you would otherwise be writing code for. So things like decision tree logic, mm -hmm. so how to chain functions or yes. chain capabilities together, uh, parallelization, failure handling, things like back off and retry. And this is all stuff that developers always have written code for that you end up pulling in some random, you know, uh, module off of NPM or a yeah. pit package or something. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, like, yeah. oh, this does exponential back off and retry, <laughs> and it's made by you know Code Blaster three one seven. I'll yeah, trust yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. um, <laughs> uh, you know, Step Functions helps you take that logic out, put it up to a managed platform for you, so that you don't have to think about um, about how to do that. 
And so uh, Stepfunction has been out now for, for a couple of years. And what we did basically, or what we heard from customers was a couple of things. One, you know, the way the service was built, uh, the throughput of it maybe couldn't handle some of the most extreme workloads. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a cost aspect to it that also made some folks, um, you know, didn't work for them basically. And so what Express Workflows do is they have a really, really massive scale difference. So the, the default limits here, and I, I just had to pull this up from my notes for standard workflows, uh, was over uh, 2,000 per second. Uh, this supports over 100,000 per second, right? So that's a, there's a magnitude of difference yes. there. Yeah. Now there's some trade-offs, I would say, or, or just some differences between these. With standard workflows, you could have a workflow that could run for a year. Yeah. That's a kind of unusual thing, but it's something that we've seen people need. Because mm -hmm. uh, workflows aren't just for Lambda functions. You could have human actions. Yes. You could have batch processing. Mm -hmm. You can have... Things that go away and come back again at some point. The call in time. back pattern yeah. and some of those other things. Yeah. Um, but this actually gives you a max runtime of five minutes. So where you have a very kind of discrete scoped workflow where you still have the same kind of logic that you want to kind of capture, you still want to do the same type of failure handling, but it isn't one of these much longer, you know, types of runs that might happen. Uh, this is is pretty key for that. One of the other things is a giant cost difference for this. So this works out to be about a dollar per million invocations, um, where I believe the uh, the standard workflows was about $25 per million state transitions. It was transitions. $0.02 cents per 1,000 state transitions yeah. or something, yeah. Yeah, it, so there's, I, I may actually be wrong on the math on that one, uh, but, but basically still it is a, a magnitude difference in yeah. cost. Yeah. And so, um, you know, again, I think this is another thing where it's just gonna unblock people for being more comfortable with saying, yeah, you know what, I don't have this really long running workflow execution. Uh, I want to take some data in, I want to pass it through a couple different services real quick, and then, um, you know, or a couple different Lambda functions or whatever it is that you might be tying to, you know, get the end result of that and be done. Um, this is just going to enable that to happen at much greater scale. Yeah, and even just from the, the, the pricing standpoint is huge for a lot of those workflows, even the ones that I've been doing, um, you know, we have an article system uh, at, at the company I work at, and we we pull down articles from the the uh, from the internet, and we we run them through a series of natural language processing, and we do some uh, extraction, and then we do some algorithm drawing. Now, all of that happens within thirty seconds, right? Mm -hmm. But I have several pieces of that uh, logic that I like to reuse in different ways. So what I end up doing is either stitching those functions together with asynchronous calls or something like that, which you have you know has uh, some problems that you can get, um, or uh, you know, you, you're you're just basically putting all of that code into one, you know, uh, lambda lift, as you said. Yeah. Um, and I don't like doing that. I, I so this is one of those things where now step functions would actually become very, very useful to me and affordable for the volume that we're doing. Because even so, it just you know gets kind of uh, out of control. So I, I think that is a, that is a very important one and. Um, It'll it'll make I think function composition uh, for the right yeah. types of things, and then just having those guarantees yeah. and, and the back offs and and the and the retries and the error handling um, taken care of for you. So I think that one is yeah. um, is pretty cool. Um, all right, so there was the amplified data store that was launched. I think people should go and kind of look at that if you're in the mobile space. That's a little bit yeah. outside of your yeah. Scope. I mean, it, it, but my. Uh... My knowledge and ability to be hands-on with it is limited to this point, but my understanding is it's it's really here to help you with you know offline data synchronization, yeah. storing data on the device, mm -hmm. um, and so for mobile developers, uh, it's super powerful. Yeah, so I think that is certainly going to fit in because especially with Amplify and all these other things that are happening. Yeah, um, there's a, Amplify is launching a lot of stuff into the serverless space, and so there's some overlap yeah. there, but definitely more mobile. Um, I'll have to get. Uh, um, uh, I'll have to get like maybe Nader Dabit on, and we can yes. talk about yeah, Amplify. Yeah, Richard. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so um, those are sort of the main things I think that were launched this week. But as we said, there were some things that were launched um, uh, leading up to that. Uh, one of those things, which I think is a huge game changer, is Lambda Destinations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is a big one. Uh, and, and it's one that I think for people who are new to serverless application design, they kind of are like, you know, they scratch their head a little bit trying to think about it. But, um, you know, you mentioned this before of, you know, why, so what Lambda, what does Lambda Destinations allow you yeah. to do? Basically for asynchronous invocations, it allows you to capture either the success or failure outcome of that function mm -hmm. execution. And so uh, we have for many years now had a concept called dead letter queues, which would allow you to capture in failure scenarios the uh, you know event request that went in that failed. And you could take that message into the dead letter queue, reprocess it somewhere else, uh, you know, pull it back up later. And so basically it would help you with capturing uh, and then being able to retry failed events. Mm -hmm. But we had a lot of situations where customers were creating and writing a lot of code for the success path as well. So you had times where, let's say you were processing data out of S3. Mm -hmm. So people are uploading images, uploading data files, uploading whatever it might be. S3 calls Lambda, Lambda executes. Well, what happened? Mm -hmm. uh, and so for a lot of folks, they'd be doing a lot of log writing. Uh, they've been doing, you know, maybe they're creating almost like a, an inventory system in, in DynamoDB or something like that you're to track actions. Yeah, you're including the SDK and then having to make yeah. a, a, a call from the SDK, yeah. uh, from the Lambda function to another service. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was, it was overhead in a couple different ways that people didn't want to deal with. And so what Lambda Destinations does, completely out of band from your code, you know, to write any code to handle this, it's now just built into Lambda. You have the ability to take both the success and the failure of a Lambda execution and pop it off to one of a number of different places. So you can A, send it to a different Lambda function. Mm -hmm. uh, you can also send it to an Amazon uh, SNS or SQS target, as well as EventBridge. Yes. And so uh, this will allow for some you know, interesting chaining of functions. It would allow you to take, at least in the success cases, and say, hey, okay, so we did complete this step in this Lambda function, this, this action in my workflow. Mm -hmm. Now let's, let's send it elsewhere for something else or some other service or some other space. Uh, and I could see where this plus EventBridge could be super yes. powerful. Yes. <laughs> um, and it, it, it's like, EventBridge is just such an awesome product because really of all is. the things it could do. Yeah. So it's like, um, yes, you could send these directly to SNS and SQS, but you can just send it to EventBridge, we can also send it to there, right. and then also a lot of other places. And, have, and, and, uh, and with the event registry, uh, with the schema registry, you basically could have other teams saying, oh, uh -huh. by the way, when that, Lambda, uh, when that uh, S3 uh, file gets uploaded, the file gets uploaded, a Lambda function processes it, and then after that's done, it sends an event to uh, EventBridge that says, hey, uh, this was processed with some information around it, and now you may have a service from some other team that says, hey, you know, we'd really like to know yep. when somebody has uploaded that image, yep. and you don't have to do anything anymore. I mean, in, exactly. that, in that situation, S3 to Lambda to EventBridge, you don't even need to include the Amazon SDK or the AWS SDK exactly. um, and write any of that code. You just process it and spin yeah. payload back and it handles everything yeah. for you. You, you. One of the things I talk about in, uh, one, in actually two of my talks this week, uh, the two, two talks that I have, is about this tendency for people to always want to build synchronous applications. Yes. They want to glue part A to part B to part C. And this is one of the things that over the last couple of years we keep having to kind of reinforce this aspect that building more asynchronous distributed mm -hmm. applications is the only way to build them. Yeah. And um, 
but, but we still see a lot of people doing these types of motions, writing a lot of this glue code, doing all this extra work. And so this is going to enable it being even easier to build these distributed workflows, mm -hmm. to build, but, but not just build them, but build resilient ones. Yes. So you capture both the success and the failure. We give you both the request and potentially the response. And so you can take either of those pieces of data as you might need and then do something else more beyond that. So you know the failure side of things now, you could take this and send it to Eventbrite and say, you know what, let's send it to, uh, here, here's maybe like an interesting one. Oh, the work that you were trying to do was, was too big for your Lambda function. You could basically build a system here that captures the failure of the event and attempts to reprocess it in Fargate, yeah. in ECS, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in some other place. So you can get away from like, oh, the limitations of Lambda block me from doing this occasionally. Yes. You know, one in a hundred requests is out of the bands of the limits of Lambda. Uh, oh, I can't use Lambda anymore. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like this basically changes it so that you don't have to have a lot of crazy logic up front. You don't have to do anything super creative behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. You can pass it back through the rest of, you know, the kind of ecosystem of things that exist and solve the problem. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a minor little thing, but it's going to be super powerful for how people architect distributed applications with serverless. And you mentioned the people really wanting that synchronous um, experience. And I totally agree. I think that that's something where people are like, oh, well, I need to know that this happened before I can maybe move on to the next step. But I think where people are maybe not thinking about this is you, you want to do that with long polling. Like you want to do an HTTP request and wait for all this stuff to happen and come back. Yeah. You don't want to do that. I, I mean, there you could use WebSockets with API Gateway mm -hmm. if you wanted to, make a mm -hmm. connection, calls API, that bounces around to a bunch of different services, do what yep. you need, and then send it back to. Or even AppSync, for example, has uh -huh. the sort of two-way push mechanism yeah, subscriptions. Built, subscriptions yeah. built into it. Um, so once you, you make some change, you make some call, and when that data uh, is, is, is uh, updated, then that will go ahead and push back to you and, and do it. So there are different ways to build that model. Um, and get a synchronous feel, mm -hmm. uh, but still be using the benefits and the resiliency and not have, you know, service six, you know, the sixth service in line fails and then everything fails and then yeah. you have to reprocess the yeah. whole thing. Um, so that's interesting. So those are the success path stuff. You mentioned um, a little bit about the, the DLQ stuff. So this is the, the, the failure mode on this really should replace DLQs now on asynchronous. And, and that's yeah. because you now get the context. You get the payload like you used to with a DLQ, but now you actually get the context of the error um, when yep. it fails. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, if you have DLQs today, great. Keep using them. This supersedes DLQs. So, this is, this is better DLQs. It doesn't cost you anything extra. Yep. Again, it doesn't change your code. Um, you could plug your DLQ, you know, consuming or, or you know, retry model back into this same thing. Mm -hmm. um, this just gives you better options for it. So, yeah, if, if you've got DLQs today, uh, again, this is just going to give you more information. It's a minor configuration change. Yeah, and so. I think uh, I think the the pattern here is probably on error, send it to EventBridge. EventBridge maybe puts it back into an SQSQ if you want to do some replay or some of that. Now, the, yeah. the shape of the data is going to look a little bit different, but um, here's a trick I haven't tried yet, but I think this will work. Do your failure into EventBridge and then use a subscription to SQS to actually transform the data to just put the original payload back into SQS. I think you can do that. I think you, you should be able to do that. Um... Yeah, you I mean yeah, you should be able to do that. It's a question yeah. of do you need to? I don't yeah, know. Do you need to? I mean, that's yeah. right. You, whatever your re, your retry mechanism or your replay mechanism could certainly do that. But um, I just like to think of weird things like that. You might be able <laughs> yeah. to um, yeah. sort of sort of play around with. Uh -huh. um, 
All right, so then more on DLQs, actually. Um, another announcement was SNS DLQs. Yeah, yeah. So distributed systems have some unique qualities to them. Um, and, and actually like also... everything fails all the time. Yeah, as I say, so, you know, Werner has his line. Uh, Werner Riggle, CTO of Amazon, has his line about, you know, everything fails all the time. And we get a lot of people who say things like, you know, I want to guarantee that, that nothing's ever going to fail. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, if I had that for you, I would, I would be gambling right now and not talking to you exactly. because I would be some sort of mega genius right. or like some you know, fortune teller. Um, so yeah, you know, there's always the potential that something could go boom in an application. Uh, there's no way to avoid this. If you think you've avoided it somehow in your on-prem server somewhere, right. uh, you're wrong. Yes. You know, like, there's even a reason why NASA does things in, in threes and fours and fives yeah. and stuff like that. Um, so uh, you, one of the things that we have with uh, services like SNS, you know, it gets an event that comes in from over the sources, and then it wants to send it to something like Lambda or to another target, mm -hmm. like an HTTP endpoint um, or to SQS. Yeah. And if for some reason it can't reach that endpoint, it can't deliver that message, uh, SNS by default does do retries to different targets. Mm -hmm. But if it continues to fail over a period of time, you could have hypothetically in the past lost that message. Yes. And so, uh, you know, straightforward, this gives that DLQ or that dead letter Q mechanism to SNS. So if you have a failure off of it, then you can capture it and retry it yeah. or, or do whatever you might need to do with it. So uh, for those rare situations where you have that type of an issue, you know, again, uh, especially with if you do DLQs to something like SQS, yes. then you're not paying for anything mm -hmm. unless you have the problem. And if you have the problem, you have a safety net. Mm -hmm. that, that's a pay-for-what-you-use model that you can pull stuff out of it as you need to. It's entirely worth and, it. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I, like, I've been preaching around Lambda for a while now for you know, gen general asynchronous workflows to just enable DLQs. Mm -hmm. like I, part of me wishes that I could say that we would just like, enable it for default for you, yes. uh, but, but you know, it is a, a mechanism you have to think a little bit about. Uh, so yeah, if, if you have SNS, uh, go enable DLQs. Just go ahead and do it. Yeah. Uh, set it up to go to a queue, set up a CloudWatch monitor to look at queue depth, and you know, maybe you don't even know how to pull stuff out of it right now. Um, but uh, set up that alarm so when it does, you could say, okay, well, I, I can queue stuff up for a pretty long period of time, a couple of days, and then find a way to process it and pull it out. Yeah, and another pattern that this opens up, which I think is really, really interesting, and this is in combination with the Lambda destinations, is let's say you're running some piece of uh, processing logic in a Lambda function, and that has to now make a call to an API, um, a third-party API. You take your Lambda function, you process it, the payload, you use a success that sends it to SNS. SNS has a subscription, an HTTP subscription, mm -hmm. and then a DLQ on that. And if that fails, there's nothing, you're not writing any code here yeah. other than here's what it should be that goes into my, exactly. into my endpoint. And I think, and that, that just uh, gets rid of so many headaches. Because if you're trying to do that HTTP call from your Lambda function, mm -hmm. um, you have a problem. Oh, and by the way, you don't need a NAT anymore. Um, if you're running it in a VPC, because now you can just send it out and let SNS make that HTTP call for you, uh -huh. and now you've saved you know thirty dollars a month for having a NAT or whatever that is there, right? So there's yeah. some yeah. really interesting for an asynchronous things. call, yeah, yeah, some really interesting things this all yeah. this does. And you know, with when you use a a service like SQS or SNS or EventBridge or Kinesis for asynchronous communication, you get with it the benefits of the. Uh, you know, persistence and durability capabilities. Yes. So it's not like, oh, I have this data in my single execution environment, and if that goes boom, I lose it. Yeah. Like, you put it into there, and you have these durability capabilities and these persistence capabilities that, again, in and of themselves are super powerful.
All right, one more, and then I'll let you get back to the uh, expo floor. I know you have a, another talk later on today. Yeah. Uh, SQS FIFO support for yes. Lambda functions. Yeah, yeah, this is a big one. So we we first announced SQS support for for Lambda, so the ability for Lambda to directly consume off of SQS queues, uh, standard queues, I should say, back in the summer of 2018, mm -hmm. and it was one of these use cases that is just so. Lambda E, I yes. should say. Yes. <laughs> um, people wanted it for so long, and we just we 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 got around to it. We had to build some things before we could make that happen. But uh, we launched that, and everybody was like, "Great, okay, now FIFO support." Yes. And so uh, FIFO support, or first in, first out, basically gives you order data inside of a queue. Um, there are a lot of situations where keep, people care about you know order of records coming in, mm -hmm. whether it be for transactional things, whether it be for uh, you know sensor data, IoT workloads, uh, tracking of all sorts of things, uh, clickstream tracking, yep. basically another option instead of Kinesis, and you can just throw things into it and pull it out when you want. And so uh, uh, FIFO support, um, again, now supported in Lambda, mm -hmm. um, it has the ability for you to pull out batches of records aligned based on an attributes um, message group ID. The message group ID, yeah. yeah. So it, it can still actually support some really massive throughput yeah. um, and uh, be able to, again, allow you to buffer up a bunch of information, pull it out all out ordered if you need to. Uh, you don't have to run any extra code. You don't have to do any polling yourself. Mm -hmm. You just have your Lambda functions consume records and, and do the thing. Yeah, and I, when I, what I love about the, the ordered nature, nature of this is you think about Kinesis, and that's the, been the go-to when you wanted ordered records. Um, and then you'd have to do shards, you know, so you, yeah. and then shards would scale. And I know you've added some other cool things like the parallel yeah. stuff. And, yeah, and that's some a big of, one too. Uh, yeah. But uh, we, could, we, we don't have enough time to talk about <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, next time. Um, but with the FIFO thing that's really cool is, uh, like you said, on the message group ID, essentially that creates... Um, essentially a shard ID, if you think about it, that mm -hmm. you can have. So if you had, if you wanted 10 separate Lambda functions to be processing things in parallel, you can pull stuff off of that stream using that group ID. You'd have 10 different group IDs that could do that. And you can use that group ID then, or the message group ID, to segment maybe different customers yep. or whatever. So it's only, you know, parts of the stream that you need ordered or you know, and grouped by a certain thing. So I think there's some patterns in there too where you might be able to use it for priority and some of those other yeah, things absolutely. that you could do some interesting could. stuff with. Yeah. You could. Um, all right, great. So um, let's close with this because I, I love talking to the, the people at AWS. Everybody, all the PMs, all the engineers. <laughs> no, you, everyone's just so excited about the future, right? And I think yeah. you got a lot of people like me and there's a, there's a whole bunch that we just, I, I'm, I, I, you know, hang on the, the what's new blog, like what, you know, what's uh -huh. coming out next um, and what can I build with it? Because, and I think, you know, you've got 65,000 people here who uh, I think share that enthusiasm, but but that is infectious because of the way that your team and the PMs that, that are building these products. So um, I, I think you're more in the role of advocacy, obviously, and you've got a great team of people. You've added some some great people. Um, and then I know like there's some uh, evangelists as well who are, yep. are doing you know, similar yeah, a work, lot of folks. a little bit different. But um, so what what is that? What's that future of ad advocacy at AWS? What are you, what are you gonna, you know, what what are, you, what are your plans for serverless around this and 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 getting that get, getting people on board with hey, serverless is the way. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, in, in in a broader sense, I, I kind of and maybe this is a little more into like our strategy. Like I think of customers across like three different life cycles. So mm -hmm. there's there's the completely net new kind of green customer who's like, what is this stuff? How does it work? Uh, they're the folks that are further along in their journey. They're they're building applications for production. They're they're you know doing real life 
real world things with it. And they're like, you know what, I'm running into some rough edges. I'm mm -hmm. looking for some best practices, guidance. You know, how do I scale this right? How do I do the best you know, patterns and stuff like yep. that? And then there are the folks uh, like yourself, uh, like like Ben Keel from iRobot, sure. yeah. uh, like many of our other heroes, many of our big customers where you're like pushing on the bounds mm -hmm. of what we can do and how we do it. And, you know, across all those different areas, we, we want to look to be able to tell, you know, tell stories, share advice, give guidance, gather feedback, uh, you know, continue to grow the space, grow the workloads. You know, we, we use this uh, hashtag a lot, all of us, uh, which is, you know, service for everyone. Yeah. And I say big picture, the view that we have is that we want to be in a position where uh, customers could say, we're going to be serverless first. And those customers could be in any industry, in any vertical, in any size, building you know any type of an application. And then we want them to say, okay, we're going to be serverless first, and then we're going to knock it down based on a roadblock or a limit or a mm -hmm. challenge. And then part of what my team has to do is, is, okay, great. Tell me more about it. Tell me more about that story. Let me take that feedback and deliver it back to the PMs so that we can start thinking about what's the, what is the potential solution that can be built for it. So, you know, I think in, in 2020, you're going to see my team and some of the technical evangelists and other folks inside of AWS uh, all over the place talking about serverless. Sure. Uh, you're going to see a lot more blog posts. You're going to see maybe some more instructive guidance uh, around certain topics. You know, we're going to keep doing uh, tech talks and Twitch and in a lot of conferences and a lot of places. Uh, if you're lucky, you'll get to see Eric Johnson up on stage, <laughs> my man full of energy and excitement. Love, love uh, you'll get to, get to so read, fun. you know, the, the yeah. incredible stuff that uh, the team is writing as well. And um, yeah, you know, I just, you know, every year over the last five years, service is getting bigger and bigger and yes. bigger and bigger. Lambda is typically one of the top one to three topics at our summits or even this year as well. Yeah. Um, the talks are super packed. And so, you know, this space just keeps growing. The, the, the customers keep doing incredible things. Uh, it's changing the way they build applications. And we just want to continue to magnify and grow that, I'd say. That's awesome. And I know they just announced the builders library. Um, yeah. And I'm sure that you'll probably contribute to some of that. I'm not I'm not smart enough for that stuff. That's <laughs> well, for the real experts. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll, we'll get some good <laughs> serverless stuff there. And then also, um, I know uh, Hader Lessa is uh, working on uh, revamp of the well-architected framework yes. for with the serverless yes. lens. Very cool stuff um, there. And I think that'll be out soon um, if it's not already. Uh, so there's just a lot of good stuff, a lot of good information. And like you said, uh, and there's, there's a bunch of great conferences now. I mean, all those serverless days conferences mm -hmm. um, all around the globe, uh, really interesting people speaking and not and not just from Amazon either. And I think it's really great to see what Azure is doing and see yeah. what GCP is doing and and where they're pushing the boundaries, where they're going. Because I think that, you know, if it's solving customer problems, that's what AWS is focused on. And, and that's great. So, yeah, I, I you know, uh, my, my view is the the deeper and richer the ecosystem, uh, the better it is for everybody. Right. You and can't be so, in an echo chamber. You know, yeah. exactly. Awesome. All right. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being here and taking the time to do this. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you and, uh, uh, and, and, yeah. and find out more about serverless or uh, what AWS does, how do they do that? Yeah. So you could find me on Twitter at, at Chris Munns. Okay. Uh, you could also, if you ever need to you know, reach out about something deeper, uh, you can get me on my last name. So Munns, M-U-N-N-S at Amazon.com. And you know, real quick, I would say people often ask me, where can I find out about the latest, greatest launches and things like that? Mm -hmm. So we post almost all of our content on the AWS Compute blog. Okay. Uh, and that's where Serverless does a lot of its announcements, you know, how-to posts, updates, things like that. And um, so, you know, you can go and search for AWS Compute Blog. You'll find it right away and see the most recent posts that we have. Perfect. I will get all of that into the show notes. Thanks again, Chris. Cool. Thanks for having me. Take care.
And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Chris Munns for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 26. For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week. <laughs>